So it's Acts 9, 1 to 31, is that correct? Yep. Yes, that's right. Yep. Okay. Shall I read? Yep, go for it. All right. Saul's conversion. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation. In arrest for any of the followers of the way he found there, he wanted to bring them both, men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, who remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to the straight street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have chosen, sorry, I have shown him a vision of a man's name Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard, so, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to, to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my, for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul, he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul in Damascus and Jerusalem. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him was amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastations among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him, but Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on his way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. 
He told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the disciples, sorry, with the apostles, and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Cassyria and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. Great. Thanks, Sandra. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you, Joel. Um, let me just start with a prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we read in Proverbs 16 that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And in that light, Lord, we pray to you as our sovereign and good Heavenly Father, that despite our plans to meet together physically today, we can't. But this is no surprise to you. We thank you that we can use technology to share the word of God and with each other and build each other up in the truth. And so now, Lord, show us your power as we see you overpower your enemy in this passage. Um, help me have confidence as I preach your word to know that Jesus is king and ruling right now. He is sovereign over all things. And thank you, Father, for your grace that you have shown to your vessel, Paul, and the fruit of his letters that is so abundant, immeasurable and everlasting. And give us ears to hear the truth of your word so that we may respond with obedience and love for our king, the Lord Jesus, and to seek to follow him to taking the gospel out to the nations. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, um, so I wanted to start with a question for us all to think about. How can we be confident in the gospel if the Lord Jesus has so many enemies? How can we be confident that the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection to deal with our sin, so that we can be presented as righteous before a holy God is true. And surely, if it was, so many people would be believing in it. There'll be no one opposing it. For example, what, what, is, what is your experience of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with your families, your friends, your neighbours, your colleagues? How do people react? Some may politely brush it off. Others, however, respond with anger and attack it. Personally, I've, I've had both experiences. Um, some have politely told me it's not for them or assume that they believe in it or at least a, a, a version of it in their own making. Others have socially ridiculed me for believing in a God who has sent his own son to die for people. And what about society? Society in general seems to be becoming a lot more anti-gospel, anti-Bible and anti-God. For example, uh, some, may, uh, some people um, seem to be speaking up against what they perceive to be outdated laws from long ago when we look to the Bible for wisdom. But what about the public figures who think God is a delusion, such as Dawkins, or a, a God who is capricious, mean-minded, and stupid, who needs to be banished? Now, I'm not sure whether Stephen Fry, who I just quoted there, would necessarily call himself an enemy of God but he doesn't like the God he sees in the Bible. And maybe many others carry his sentiments. And on a more serious note, 
what about um, Boko Haram and the many Christians they have already massacred and can continue to do so in Nigeria? Or the Hindu extremists who are burning Christians in their own homes across the state of Gujarat, where most of my family originate from? You see, Christians and therefore the Lord Jesus and his message have many enemies. What miracle would it take to change these enemies? Maybe it feels like the Lord Jesus isn't in control. With so much persecution, how do we feel? If the Lord can't deal with his enemies, then this is very discouraging. What confidence can we have in the gospel? You see, Theophilus, who Luke is writing this account for, probably had the same question. And our passage today shows us Jesus' control over one particular enemy, one who was very powerful and was hindering the Lord's plan to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and therefore making him a very dangerous enemy. Um, so as we go through this, we've got three main points to cover. And the first point to cover is, is looking at Saul, the persecutor, the fact that he is an enemy of the Lord Jesus. So let's just see what Luke tells us about him. We first hear of him uh, at the execution of the first Christian martyr. The perpetrators laid down their garments at his feet at the end of chapter 7 in, in Acts as they stoned Stephen to death. And Saul was present and even approved of the stoning in, at the beginning of chapter 8. And as we move on in chapter 8, we read that in verse 3 that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And this brings us to our passage now in chapter 9, with him breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Now, it's probably worth um, reminding ourselves of the Lord's plan that he set out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I remember Joel mentioning this at the, the start of the talks. It was for the apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is why what Saul is doing in the first two verses of our chapter today is a big deal. So let me read um, from verse 1 of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You see, the Lord's plan is to spread the gospel out. But what is Saul doing? He's doing the opposite. He's bringing it back in again. He's going up north to Damascus to bind people and to bring them back. You see, in opposing the spread of the gospel, he's actually opposing the Lord Jesus' plan. But that's not all. In opposing the spread of the gospel, he's not just opposing the early church, but he's opposing the Lord Jesus himself. When I, when I first read this chapter, I first thought that he was an enemy of the apostles, a sort of anti-apostle, and going around persecuting the early church. But as you look closer, you see that you see him being confronted by the Lord Jesus on his way to Damascus. And, and what does the Lord Jesus say to him? Why are you persecuting my people or my church? No. Read with me verses four and five. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, it says, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't persecuting mere men, but the son of God himself. Jesus identifies with his people and therefore sees Saul as his enemy. A very dangerous enemy in this context. Saul is shown to be the anti-Jesus. Like, you know, uh, battle scenes in movies where you have the hero and the arch enemy who essentially lead the battle for either side. So, for example, in, in Star Wars, we have Darth Vader leading the Sith with the backing of the Emperor and Luke the hero leading the Jedi with the power of the Force. Well, likewise, Saul is leading the persecution with the backing and the power of the Jewish leadership, and specifically the high priest, as we saw in verse 1. You see, the, you see here the Jewish leadership persecuting the church, but Saul is the leader at the front of the battle. And we saw in verse 4 that he is opposing the leader of the church, namely the Lord Jesus. So how dangerous was Saul? Well, imagine for a second, if you will, what if the church in its infancy was crushed? What if he succeeded in bringing it back to Jerusalem? Well, we certainly wouldn't be here. Think how easy it is to kill something in its infancy compared to when it's fully grown. Be that stepping on an acorn compared to a massive oak tree. Or more poignantly, a baby in a womb compared to a generation. You see, the global church is huge now. Think how incredibly disastrous it would have been if it was crushed when it was just in its thousands. So let's move on to our second point. Now we've seen how dangerous an enemy Saul was, that he was opposing the Lord Jesus himself. So how does the Lord deal with him? Well, in quite a spectacular way. Look again at verses three to six with me. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and I will be told what to do. Now, I wonder if there's an irony in the words used here. We see earlier in, verses two, in verse 2 that Saul was binding those belonging to the way. And the way was the name given to early Christians. Yet Saul is stopped as he goes on his way. The man is stopped on his way as he goes to oppose the way. What a reversal. And Saul is stopped in his tracks by light. Not, not any light. Luke carefully mentions it's a light from heaven, the dwelling place of God. And light in the Bible is always used, uh, or is often used, uh, associated with the, the glory of God and revelation. So imagine being dazzled by such a light, pure brilliance, that you are completely blinded, and that for three days. Here, it's not just a light as well, it's, it's also a voice with a direct question addressed to Saul himself. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Saul 
must have known the sheer awesomeness of this voice that and and that he is responding to if he even dare to think about it to to god himself as he asks who are you lord so let's just pause for a second here we've got to remember that saul is not just a religious man he is a hebrew of hebrews a pharisee utterly zealous about the law and charged by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem to stop this so-called cult from spreading uh, and, and leading people astray. He knows the scriptures and the great glory God they speak of, the Yahweh, the great I am of the Old Testament. So it must have been such a dramatic experience for him to respond like this. Who are you, Lord? A man like Saul will not call anyone Lord, not anyone, because that would be blasphemy. How can this, how can Yahweh from his beloved scriptures be Jesus? He was a man in the flesh and he died a cursed death on a cross. How can this be Yahweh? What a stumbling block. But of course we know that the Lord didn't remain dead, but rose again. So I hope you are beginning to see the sheer transforming power of the Lord Jesus in these few verses. They utterly turn Saul's world upside down. He's changed in an instant. And, and think about the Lord Jesus' enemies today. Can you imagine a Boko Haram leader calling Jesus Lord? No, he'll be killed for doing such a thing. Or maybe Richard Dawkins ever referring to Jesus as Lord. It would require a miracle. You see, these people don't know Jesus as Lord because he hasn't revealed himself to them. As far as they are concerned, they are convinced that they are following truth. And Christians are nothing but a mere cult. Well, this is even greater. Saul's life was built on possibly the greatest teaching of the Jewish scriptures, upon a backdrop of being a true Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. It took an awesome miracle to convince him in an instance. And so we see this powerful man completely overpowered, by this awesome power from heaven. And now he's brought down to the ground and blinded. Even as his eyes were open, he was blinded. He was a powerful and dangerous enemy, but now weak. One who led the threats, but now having to be led by the hand. He was a broken man, not eating or drinking for three days, humbled. But the Lord in his mercy doesn't completely destroy Saul. He indeed had the power to do so, as we've seen earlier, but he has a plan for him. We see this in his instructions to Ananias in verses 15 to 16. And no doubt, Ananias is fearful. He had heard about Saul and the authority he carried from the chief priests, but he, he is reassured. So read verses 15 to 16 with me. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus had a purpose for Saul. He wanted to use him as his means to reach uh, to Gentiles and nations as well as the Jews. No longer was Saul opposed Jesus' agenda to carry threats. No, 
he will now be a vessel or an instrument to carry the name of Jesus, the gospel to the nations. And you see this being fulfilled as you read through Acts. Moving on, we then see Saul being healed by the Lord Jesus uh, through Ananias in verse 17. And now no longer referred to as an enemy, but a brother. How amazing would that have been for Ananias? Can you imagine the transformation? An enemy out to kill people like Ananias and now referred to as a brother. His spiritual blindness has been healed and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He now becomes part of the true temple. Jesus has taken this dangerous enemy, revealed himself to him by supernatural heavenly light. He's humbled him and has designated him to be the one to carry the name of Jesus to the others, to others. So we've seen how the Lord Jesus deals with this specifically dangerous enemy out to destroy the church in its infancy, to nip it in the bud. Jesus overpowers and defeats him. But in a remarkable act of mercy, he opens his eyes and uses him as an instrument for his work. Which takes us on to our, our third point. Saul, now instantly changed, immediately goes to battle but now for the Lord Jesus. So reading verses uh, 20 to 22, we see, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, of who, of who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And it's, it's almost like um, Saul's Jewish background and meticulous knowledge of the scriptures and the covenants and the law and the patriarchs, the temple, all formed a sort of incomplete building or puzzle. Um, and, and Jesus sort of fits perfectly in the middle of it to make it complete. So previously he knew of God but now he knew God. Rather than opposing Jesus and carrying letters to the synagogues to bind Christians, he now carries the name of Jesus and proclaims that he is the son of God, the Christ or the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And at all of this at the amazement of his hearers. After his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, Saul is convinced that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and the way is in fact true. And it is this conviction that dramatically changes him. He is indeed Jesus' instrument to carry his name. But with being an instrument to carry the name of Jesus, suffering and persecution follow, as Jesus promised. Look at verses 23 to 25. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But the plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by the night and led him out through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And the Jews already plot to kill him. And you see that Saul, is qui that, that Saul quickly becomes an enemy of the state when he becomes a friend of Jesus and part of the true temple. His transition from the enemy's side to the side of Jesus naturally makes him an enemy of the Jews. 
and, and the, the, the lowering of the basket brings back visions of David being lowered from a window by his wife in 1 Samuel 19 uh, when the king was after him or the, the spies being lowered out of Rahab's window in the, in the walls of the city of Jericho in Joshua 2. And all of these are examples of God's provision for his people to escape from their enemies. And we are again reminded of the sheer transformation in, of Saul in verse 26. I read there. And when he, he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. The disciples didn't trust him. And can you blame them? Even they couldn't believe that a man like Saul breathing murderous threats to people like them could now be a fellow brother. How would you feel if the head of Boko Haram came to your church claiming to be a follower of the Lord Jesus? But Barnabas explains Saul's dramatic conversion. He joins them in preaching boldly, and once again, with the proclamation of the gospel, there is threat to his life in verse 29. This, as we shall see, will be a pattern for Saul as we continue our journey through Acts. But let us also remember that this is the pattern of the cross the same path that the Lord Jesus Christ took for us. And so, to finish, how can we have confidence in the gospel if the Lord Jesus has so many enemies? Well, we've seen that he has the power and authority and the mercy to turn them into instruments for his work. So does this mean that all of his enemies will be struck by blindness as they meet the risen Lord Jesus on their way to destroying his church? No, the Bible doesn't promise this. It is obvious, even though, even th though looking through Acts, that this is not the case all the time. Look, for example, at the execution of Stephen. It was tragic, but Jesus didn't intervene to stop it. Yet, at a, as a result of it, what looked like a disaster in the church being scattered, you see the gospel reaching Samaria and Ethiopia, um, through the, the Ethiopian eunuch, and of course Damascus, which is even further up north. You see, God in his wisdom allowed this. And we must ensure that we don't impose our thoughts and ideas onto God, but rather listen to what his word tells us, and above all, trust in his will. And I suppose on the topic of trusting in, in God's will, uh, especially uh, something that's very pressing on us, on all of our minds right now, is that what we've seen over the news, in the news over the past few days of the coronavirus and how it's brought our world to its knees. And no doubt, a lot of us are fearful of it. We fear the unknown. But the fight is therefore on to find a vaccine. And now I know our, our passage doesn't speak to us about this. But if we think of a deadly virus, we can apply the analogy to sin. So sin, the rejection of God, as the Bible explains it, is far worse and deadlier than the virus, and no one is immune to it, nor will anyone ever obtain any form of herb. herb immunity to it, nor can any religious of it. The only way to be rid of sin is to trust in the Lord Jesus and his substitutionary death in our place for our sins. 
And so coming back to our passage, we can be thankful that this good news, the gospel, despite all opposition, has gone out. It is growing and spreading. Jesus's plan is unstoppable because he is behind it. No matter what the enemies of Jesus do today, they cannot win. Because they are not merely fighting men, but the risen son of God. Um, and something else, well, personally, both me and Anita have been thinking about uh, recently is that our current circumstances do not depict the Lord's love for us. His love for us is steadfast. It, it never changes. So coming back um, to Acts, uh, and this account here uh, is to remind Theophilus and therefore us that Jesus is in control. And I can imagine Theophilus hearing about Saul, who was later called Paul in, in chapter 13 of Acts. Um, maybe by the time the words of the book of Acts had reached Theophilus, Paul was in chains in prison, or maybe he was even executed. And this will remind him that Jesus, King Jesus, took the man who was greatly opposing his work, but rather than destroying him, showed him mercy. And so what about us? Well, this mercy that the Lord Jesus shows Paul spreads even to us. Think about the next time you read Paul's letters. Isn't it evident as you read Romans or Corinthians or Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, etc., that this man knows Jesus personally? Do you not want that? These letters are proof of Jesus' work. And look at the fruit they have produced over the last 2,000 years. Can you imagine that the man who wrote these started off as an enemy of Jesus? What a transformation through an encounter with the risen Lord. Paul's letter to the Romans, for example, sparked the, the fire of the Reformation. Just look at the impact as he convince, convinces us that we are saved through faith in Jesus by grace alone, not through works. Paul is the man who refers to himself as carrying treasure, which is the gospel, in jars of clay mentions that his suffering has caused him to despair of life itself, and he reminds Timothy to imitate him as he imitates Christ. He is a man, uh, also the man we read of in Philippians 3, who counted all of his pedigree, all of his background, his zeal, his, his religion, his confidence, everything as lost compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And that is a profound testimony. So Paul's chains and suffering are not a sign of weakness, rather a sign of Jesus's power. And you can read Second um, Corinthians if you don't believe me. This is a power to transform, a power that is unstoppable. And so to finish, we started our passage with Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But look with me at how he ends in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see, the church multiplied. Thanks to the Lord Jesus and his plan, we who know him have the good news of sins forgiven. Will we therefore follow him as Paul did, and take this message to the ends of the earth. Amen.